1: In the Militantly mixed.
0: Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, and I am so excited to share this week's interview with you today. Uh, this one's a fresh one. It's one I just did over the weekend, and because one, I've finally cleared out the bank of interviews that I have been sitting on for several months. Because back between November and December, I had just gotten inundated with people wanting to participate. So I just interviewed, 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 interviewed. And then I kind of stopped interviewing for a period of time. Because one, I wanted to be able to remember every interview I did. And two, I had enough to release multiple episodes a week. But I was only on the schedule to release one episode a week. So I finally caught up. Not to mention... Over the course of the month of April, all of those episodes were from Militantly Mixed on the Road. Then, of course, I took my break last week because of the Memorial Day holiday, traveling, ending my toxic job, starting a new job, and everything like that. So, it feels good right now. It feels like a fresh start. (laughs) That's stupid. It doesn't feel like What does it feel like? It's just fresh. It's a, you know, the interview I just conducted is also the interview you're about to hear. And it was a really great one. I have to say there are times when you connect with a person and it just clicks into place just right away. I've been lucky enough to almost every single person I've interviewed for the show, I've had some sort of instant chemistry with. I think being mixed off the jump is a big part of why we connect, but also there's just been primarily really good connection, chemistry, whatever, between myself and everybody that I've interviewed. There's only been a few times where I just couldn't really get that momentum going. And then there's only been maybe two, three times when I've spoken to someone, some of those episodes are available, where there wasn't much chemistry. And but then there's this, these times. And Lisa, our guest today is one of those, where you meet somebody and instantly you've known each other for 40 years. And I don't know, (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. But that's what it was like with Lisa. Lisa and I connected over Instagram. We both share not only that we are mixed race women, that we are mixed black women, but that we also are knitters and we connected through a social community that's built around Lola Bean Yarn Company uh, based off of the episode that y'all heard a couple months ago, Adela Colvin, the owner operator of Lola Bean Yarn Co. So we're both in a social group that is connected to this yarn company that we love. And um, she listened to the episode and through that started following me and we started connecting. So the very first time Lisa and I speak, it's supposed to be a pre-screen. It's something I do for every guest usually where I kind of build rapport with somebody before we get on the show so that we could actually get into the meat of what we need to talk about without being like complete, complete strangers. And it's always supposed to be 15 minutes to 30 minutes. It almost always runs long. If I have really good chemistry with the person, if I, if it's still kind of like getting to know each other, we can usually stick it to that 30. Lisa and I talked for two and a half hours and we probably only got off the phone that night. I think it's because she got like her second or third call from her child. (laughs) Her child was like, get off the phone and talk to me. And then for the recording, which you're about to hear, it was the same thing. I kept telling her before we started, I'm like, I know you and I could talk for hours. So I'm going to really, really try to keep it to a reasonable length for the show And then we got to that length and past that length a little bit, but we still managed to keep it a reasonable amount of time. We continued to talk after the recording ended for a bit. I feel like I could talk to Lisa every day. She is just one of those people who just gives you good vibes. She's just, We had instant chemistry and I absolutely enjoyed this discussion. I don't know. I don't know. It just there's some people that make you feel good when you talk to them, and Lisa is one of those people. So I'm really glad to share this episode with you today. Before we do that, though, a couple of things. I wanted to mention the call to action to my audience for Juneteenth. So on June 18th, I'm going to be dropping a Juneteenth episode, which is talking about the not only the emancipation of African slaves here in America, but The holiday that was created in Galveston, Texas from June 19th, 1865, where two and a half years after emancipation, they found out slaves had been freed. And that day is marked. And it's traditionally a regional holiday. But pockets of blackness all over the country have acknowledged it and taken it on as their own celebration. My family, although we are Californians, we always celebrated it as a kid. So I didn't know until I was an adult that it wasn't widespread in blackness here in America. I am discovering more and more how few people know about this day and also that we don't mark emancipation as a nation in any significant kind of way. And I think part of that is the trying to hide from the truth of our country or what, what built this country. And also just, honestly, I'm gonna say it just because I think it's a black holiday. It's like struggling to to get any kind of attention uh, nationwide attention. So I, I did a call to action on Saturday. I released a little mini request that if you are of mixed black heritage and you celebrated Juneteenth, if you could connect with me to share your memories and or what Juneteenth means to you so that I can put those clips on the air for our Juneteenth episode. I thus far have gotten no responses <laughs> to that. And then I've actually reached out to people that I know, mixed folks that I know, friends that are practically family most across the board, I'm either hearing they were aware of it, but they didn't celebrate it. They didn't know about it until they were adults, or I was telling them about this holiday for the first time in this contact. So my hopes were a little bit dashed on whether or not I was going to get a lot of mixed folks to share their experience of Juneteenth. I am still holding out hope. So between now and June 14th, if you are one of these people who did celebrate Juneteenth as a kid, or as as you continue to do it as an adult, I would love to hear your feelings about the holiday and your memories. So I would like you to connect with me via social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Militantly Mixed. You can send me an email, Charmaine at MilitantlyMixed.com. That's S as in Sam, H-A-R-M as in Mary, A-N as in Nancy, E at MilitantlyMixed.com. Or you can uh, call my Skype line, 323 545-6001 545 and leave me a voicemail telling me what Juneteenth means to you or what your memories of Juneteenth was. And lastly, you can also send me an email to set up a time where we can get on and I can record on Skype with you about your feelings of Juneteenth. The craziest thing is after my hopes were sort of dashed about whether or not I could find any mixed Black folks to talk about this holiday with me for the show, I reached out to my full Black group of social group and same kind of thing. Never heard about the, the holiday. I knew about it, but we didn't celebrate it. It wasn't big where I was growing up. Didn't start celebrating it till I was an adult, et cetera, et cetera. And so even amongst my full Black friends and family cannot find people who celebrated this day. And it's, I got to say, there's something that I'm, I'm really personally bothered by that as a nation, we don't mark emancipation in any kind of way. Um, And I don't know why I feel like I need to I think why I feel I need to has to do with that America likes to hide from the past transgressions against humanity. And because the weird thing is we celebrate Pearl Harbor as a memorial or honoring of the Americans that fell during Pearl Harbor. And yet we forget that America did not retaliate in kind. They overkilled and wiped out two major cities, uh, mostly non-military targets in Japan. And that's just kind of like brushed under the rug with the atom bombs. So as a mixed Japanese, I have a hard time that every year in December, I have to acknowledge the, the passing of this um, one battle that happened here on US territory, but don't, and also hear people celebrating that we got them back as if the atom bombs were even remotely reasonable response to Pearl Harbor. And then as a black person, I mixed black person, I have to sit here and not acknowledge that this country that I was born in enslaved my ancestors and brought them to this country and put them to work and took them from their family members and separated them and committed all sorts of atrocities, but it just never or rarely gets acknowledged and certainly rarely acknowledged on a nationwide scale. So I think there is a significance of Juneteenth that I need to investigate for myself. And I would like to understand the holiday through other people as well, not just my memories of it, but how other people celebrate. So I'm hoping that I'll get a couple clips from some folks. They may not necessarily be mixed black folks if I don't get them, But this is a call to the audience that if you are of Mixed black heritage and you did celebrate Juneteenth as a kid, or you didn't and you just have feelings about the holiday now, I would love to hear from you. So please reach out to me and share your stories. If you send me something in writing, I will read it on the air. If you send me a clip or you arrange a time to record with me, then I will put those clips on that episode for June 18th as well. As usual, you can support the show in a variety of different ways, uh, in the grassroots free kind of way, retweet, regram, share, subscribe, rate and review, tell your friends about the show, help us spread this mixed race experience footprint that we're creating through the show across the world, tell people why you like the show, tell people why certain episodes affected you, because they're more likely to listen to those episodes and find something to connect to as well. And then start digging in past episodes. We got a huge spike in April. We had just like almost doubled the amount of listeners that, uh, I was getting in April and then in May we reduced by like a quarter. So I don't know if that's just the flow of the world or May was kind of crazy or whatever or April was just something special. I don't know. But um, getting those getting the word out and sharing with your friends, I I really, really did see a big spike in April. And I hope to keep that going. Because the more people that know about us, the less few lonely mixed folks will be out there. Um, As I've said several times, most of the contacts that I get from people talk about how lonely they felt. And they didn't realize other people felt like they did in the world. And that is a big part of why I continue to do this show or feel the need to continue to do this show. If you do want to support the show financially, you can do two a ways patreon.com slash militantlymix that's a monthly subscription your donations can start as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish there are different reward levels depending on what level you choose different swag that you'll get and that keeps the show going logistically it helps with hosting fees of the audio files keeping our email account open eventually it'll help with hosting the uh, website and everything once i get that going so that Patreon helps us with the logistics of the show. If you wish to do a one-time only donation or participate in our fundraiser, you can go to paypal.me slash militantlymix. Right now, between now and July 5th, anything that is raised through PayPal will go towards Militantly Mix on the road trying to find ways to get out there physically face to face with public. And uh, anything that comes after that, if you just randomly feel like donating here and there, that kind of stuff helps us with improving equipment, improving soundproofing, upgrading equipment, things like that. Okay, I think that's it. So without further ado... I am really, really excited to share this interview that I had with Lee. Oh, one thing I do have to say about it. I think either I was fiddling with the gain on my mic or my cat likes to press her face up against it so she could have turned the dial as well. My gain on my microphone is way amped up, so I'm very loud and my guest was not as loud. So I did some equalizing to make sure that our voices sound fairly the same, volume but when i did that you could hear so much of the background noise uh like ambient noise from me so there are patches of this show where you do hear some loud ambient noise i've trimmed it down as much as i can but um part of it is what's done is done if you record too loud you can't often fix it and part of it is if i had a little bit more talent which will take me a little bit of time I probably could clean it up a little bit more. It's definitely better than probably most of my first 10 episodes when I had, when I didn't know anything that I was doing. Now I know a little bit more, but I don't think I know enough to fully clean it up. So primarily the episode sounds fine. There's little pockets though, where it'll suddenly sound like there's snow in the background a little bit. So Whatever, gotta put that out there. But without further ado, I'm really excited to share this episode with my guest, Lisa, AKA Viola Mom 2. I guess this week is Lisa. Lisa, why don't you tell everybody about yourself and let's get into it.
1: Hey, my name is Lisa. Um, I'm a classical musician. I've been teaching music for 30 years plus. I'm of mixed heritage, Black, Irish, Scottish, Cherokee, and probably some other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I'm just 50 years old, at least for the next day or two. And uh, mm-hmm. that's my best life. There you go.
0: Uh, so we connected via Instagram. And the t- it's just the, the period of time that y- you and I started reaching out was full on chaos for me. I was trying to transition out of a very toxic job, which I think we mm-hmm. can both commiserate over. I'm in a new job now, but I'm only three days in. So I don't know my feelings yet. But uh, we've managed to finally get together and speak and everything. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you. And you are yet another person that I ended up saying I was going to talk to for 30 minutes and ended up talking to for like multiple hours. So (laughs) this is going to be great. It's going to be awesome.
1: I really enjoyed um, the stuff you were posting on Instagram. I saw you. And of course, I'm I'm open and attuned to a lot of different things on Instagram. I'm a knitter. I know Me you too. and I connected on mm-hmm. knitting. That's right. And the first time I heard your podcast was when you interviewed the owner of Lola Bean Knit or Lola Bean Yarn Company. And that interview just totally, I fell in love with you. I thought you were awesome and amazing. Yay!
0: <laughs> I, was, I was full on fangirling because although I do engage with Adela on, on Facebook and everything through her yarn company page, I'm like full on like yarn crush on Adela. So getting a chance to sp- not only to sit there and talk to her, but to also talk to her about mixed stuff was right. so fun. Came alive on that episode.
1: Well, so- definitely did. Cause you guys, I loved that episode. That episode had me laughing. I-
0: it was so fun. <laughs> it was so much that fun. Awesome.
1: <laughs> that is so great. I was I was born in a small log cabin. (laughs) Um, I was actually born in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s. The funny story behind that is that I was born. This is a little historical nugget for you. I was born the day before the California primary in 1968. And uh, rather famously, Robert Kennedy won the California Democratic primary Mm -hmm. and then was shot right after that. So He and I shared the planet for about three days. Mm. It was kind of a that was kind of a thing for me historically that I was always really interested in. And I I got really deep into some of his social justice stuff, his his raised consciousness as a white man and a politician and a, a man of privilege. And how he was actually going into these impoverished areas of the South that were almost exclusively Black. And, you know, so, so mm-hmm. that was one of my earliest ways of looking at the world and seeing that there could be some way of us being interested in each other and helping each other. And that white people weren't all necessarily bad and racist and awful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up in Philly in the 70s and... I always like to tell people there was more violence on my block in one day than there was in like a whole season of Law and Order. Mm. Um, Because it was it was deep growing up in in that area in the 70s. And, you know, the riots had taken place in various parts of the country. And there were some, you know, burnt out shells of buildings that are still there Mm. 50 years later. It's crazy. I grew up in my grandmother's house and she was from the south. So I remember amazing food. That was like <laughs> my, my dad was real light skinned, too, as in my and my grandmother. Um, I always loved the fact that she and I both had freckles. I thought that was awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was the greatest thing ever because I thought she was gorgeous. And, you know, the way you feel about the people in your family, you look at them and they're beautiful to you because they're kind or they love you or they feed you or, you know, whatever. But she just had the biggest heart. and. I think I am the person I am today because of her. She was just, she was tough. Now she, she took no shit mm. real. She took no shit and she made it really clear who ran that family. <laughs> and, by the way, that was her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she was a fierce, a fierce mom and a fierce grandmom and just the love. And I never questioned where I stood with her. And I did with many other members of my family mm. including my parents. hmm. But I remember not understanding like the whole color dynamic, you know, because some people in the family were dark and some people in the family were light. And that was my first exposure to color politics. And, you know, people making fun of you because you were high yellow or light bright or whatever. And
0: Wow. And, light bright. That's digging into the crates a little bit. I haven't heard someone say that
1: in, yeah, in a long it, time. It, that one's old. It's an oldie but a baddie. Yeah. Um, and um. And then some of the other members of my family who might have been on the lighter side talking about the folks on the dark side. And it just, wow, mm. the, the language that we used for each other, the self-hatred we had within the different shades and colors in the Black community, that, that stuck with me for a long time. And I think there was a lot of, I think growing up and as I got older and, you know, in the 70s and 80s, we as, as women of color people of color were not as represented right in ads in magazines and all of these other things so I kept seeing these like real skinny white women held up as this standard of beauty and I remember thinking I'm never going to look like that like I got a booty I gotta go and I you know I'm never going to have that hippie you know, the hips and the, the sort of little teeny behind bikini body, that was never happening. It was just an odd kind of thing. Like, I'm, I know that in certain aspects growing up, I was told I was beautiful, but it was like the world was telling me I wasn't. Right. So that was really deep growing up.
0: It was so weird living, and I, you probably have this too, living around all different kinds of Black folks, but never seeing us on TV right and thinking how is it that my whole day every day is black except for tv like are we all just here you right. know <laughs> like are we just in my neighborhood and nowhere else like it never made sense that people in movies and tv and on magazines didn't look like anybody that we knew
1: absolutely that was crazy and i went to a school that was predominantly white my family had somehow managed to pull some strings to get me in a a school that was way outside of my neighborhood. It was in a beautiful, you know, obviously predominantly white neighborhood. And it was a great elementary school. And, you know, the rest of the kids in my neighborhood were going to school two blocks up the street and nobody wanted to go to that school. That school was just scary and awful. Mm. But, but, you know, that instead of my parents explaining to me that that was just, you know, that was a product of society not valuing children of color and not investing in those schools, they just sent me to a different school. Right. So I didn't really understand it. I just, you know, I was a six-year-old girl. They're like, this school's bad. That school's good. You're going to the good school. Mm. Okay, whatever.
0: Can Um, I ask, were were there dark-skinned kids at the good school, quote-unquote, that you went to?
1: There were kids of all kinds of backgrounds, actually. Mm. It was predominantly white, but I did see brown people of different shades of brown. Okay. Um the other interesting thing about that was, you know, I came from a family from the south, so we ate stuff, you know, we ate neck bones and noodles and mm-hmm. black-eyed peas and rice and greens and all that stuff. And I just, you know, you sit next to a little white girl at school and she's eating white bread with cream cheese. <laughs> I'm like, what the what? What, what is that, that food, food is just white like everything you eat is white what the hell so yeah that was really strange that was very very strange that
0: reminds me of the time that um before i started going to the daycare that my co-host on the other show where comics mom ran that's how we met before i started going there for like a couple of weeks i was at this white lady's house my brother and i were at this white lady's house and her snack time was always cottage cheese, and either pineapples or melon. And I never had cottage before. I had never seen cottage cheese before that. Wow! And it was so confusing. And to this day, I can't. Well, I can't stomach it. It's not something that I find delightful in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but to this day, whenever I see somebody whip out the cottage cheese at like at work at the break room or something like that. I, it just takes me back to this moment of like the first time I was ever like in a white house. Mm. And that's just like not understanding how they could eat this weird white food. (laughs) All of our food had seasoning. (laughs) I mean, even on the Japanese side, we had
1: food that had flavor. There you go. I hear you. you. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) So yeah, that was, that was a new awakening and, and going between it really felt like I was going between two worlds. You know, mm-hmm. I was going from my neighborhood where I was the light-skinned kid who couldn't jump double dutch. Ah. And yeah, I was, I i still can't. <laughs> I mean, that shit's just never happening. So that's, and I, you know, I was a smart kid. I was a bright kid. And I got opportunities at this other school that I would not have gotten at the school in my neighborhood. And I remember... As I got older and moved through school, I started playing violin when I was eight. Mm. And the other kids, there was this one girl in my neighborhood. She saw my violin and she just wanted to play it so bad. And, you know, looking back, I think to myself, she should have had an opportunity to play. Right. You know, it's it's sad. It's sick that she didn't.
0: Do you remember how the violin was the thing that you ended up playing? For me? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. That story is actually really, really, really burned in my brain. Um, there are a couple stories surrounding that. I remember you and I were talking at one point about the whole, you know, being a black girl and being a geek, you Right. Know? so for me, that was the file in. I went to school, not far from a place in Philadelphia that is a major conservatory and Two of the students there came to my music class. Now, I grew up back when they still had music class in school. Uh, It was two young women, and one played French horn, and the other one played violin. And I ran, I just, I got to my mom after school. I was like, mom, I just have to play the French horn. And she was like, what? Mm. You want to play the what? Now, I had an older aunt that was apparently a, quote, bad girl. Um, And she played French horn in high school. So my parents didn't want me to do anything like her.
0: Oh, funny.
1: Oh, yeah. Hilarious. So they came up with some reason, heavy air quotes, why I couldn't do it. They were like, um, yeah, it's too heavy. You couldn't carry that. (laughs) So I went back to school the next day and I got the paperwork and everything. And I came home and I was like, Fine. I picked up the violin. I could carry it. I want to play violin.
0: (laughs) Oh, funny. That's cute.
1: So that's how I ended up playing violin. And, you know, I'm one of these obsessive people. When I got the violin, I practiced all the time. And we had a woman at school who came in a couple days a week and would teach us lessons in groups of two. And one day the other kid wasn't there. So she and I were just one on one. And she assigned me something in the book. And I was like, I've already done that. And she's like, really? Play mm. it for me. And I did. And then she says, okay, how about this next page? And I played it for her. And she's like, how far did you go? And I would literally done half the book. Mm. I was just so excited. I was trying to teach myself stuff. Um, and I kind of took off that way. and And music just became a real retreat for me a, you know just something to keep me grounded in a crazy life um, things in my household were not always calm and peaceful i don't want to go into a lot of detail but you know mm-hmm. how families are their dynamics and people act certain ways and do certain things and and they're not always good and they're definitely not always good for a small child right and so yeah music was my thing it was it was the thing that really grounded me. My parents had listened to music all the time from as far as I can remember. And they had really eclectic taste. jazz and blues and rock and everything. Even occasionally classical music would come on. Um, and they kind of looked at me like I was strange. I remember my mom saying, I don't know why you want to do that. Black people don't play the violin. And I was just like, mm. well, that's not true because I'm Black and I'm playing it, so.
0: Right, and such a confusing thought experiment for a child to be figuring out, well, does that mean I'm not Black, or I am Black and I'm doing this, so what does that mean? Are my parents lying? You know, like, there's so many things that go in there.
1: Well, there was a lot of a feeling when I was growing up that there was just something wrong with me. I remember my parents. Whenever whenever I did something or wanted to do something that was off their radar, um, my mother's line was always, you know, you're really strange. Mm. And, it, you know, I, I I had opportunities to do some really, really great stuff. I don't know if it was because I was really good. Or because I was kind of good and brown and it made people feel good to do things for the,
2: for mm. the kind
1: of brown girl. I don't know. Um, I'd like to think it was all me. But I I know that I came up in a time when being a person of color, particularly a young woman of color, was real fashionable and they wanted to um, they wanted to put us forward. So mm. I got a lot of opportunities and I, that I'm very grateful for, and I've spent the rest of my life paying them back, and we'll get into that later. But, um, yeah, I, I remember I got to go to Spain with my high school Spanish class when I was 16. And I came back, and, girl, the world opened up to me when <laughs> I went to Europe. And not that, you know... I'm I'm very proud to be an American. I don't want to sound like I'm unpatriotic and not happy to be here, but the world over there was totally different, yeah. and it opened up a way of life that was so not Protestant work ethic. <laughs> I mean, I personally believe that every civilized country should have a siesta. Same. I mean, damn! I get tired in the middle of the afternoon. I need a nap. Okay.
2: Same.
1: So, and and the. You know, the wine was delicious and the coffee was mind blowing and the food was just crazy and the artwork and the churches. You could go in to like these tiny towns where they didn't have money, but the church had was packed with all these treasures and all this gold and it was beautiful and jewels and everything. And not one of those people would ever have thought to walk into that church and steal. Hmm. And that. That just struck me because, you know, growing up in the ghetto, I saw all sorts of stuff. Right. And, you know, there was always my mother saying, you can't ever have anything nice in the ghetto because, and I won't say the word she said, Well, come and take this <laughs> stuff. Um, I don't like using that word. I mean, like in casual conversation, I, I will, but I, I didn't like the way she used it because it was always a put down.
0: There was hateful in it. Yeah, hateful in it. It
1: was hateful. It was self-loathing in a lot of ways. And that bothered me. Right. I, I even realized it until I was older and had my own kids. Mm-hmm. But I came back from Spain, and both of my parents looked at me like I was an alien. And they were like, I don't know, you've changed. Mm. And it was like, you've changed was like this big negative. It was like, you're not the person we knew. And, and you're different. And we don't want you different. We want you to forget all about that experience and just be who you were. And that was a very confusing. Time like my whole childhood, all the way up through high school, was a very confusing time. And I just remember thinking to myself, if you can get through this and get the hell out of here and go to college, you'll be okay, right? Um, and I did that, I ended up doing that, and I was, I was, I never really went home again. That was the hardest part because I loved my family. Um, I still love my family, a lot of them are gone now, but. Going back was too painful because I was changing and I was becoming a different person and I was learning about different cultures and and I was starting to grow into my own. I'm trying to bring this back around the whole mix thing. (laughs) I was come into my own as a person of color who could define herself for herself and look at the different aspects of who I was you know, I, talking to you, I really envy the fact that you knew that you had this British heritage and you knew that you had this Japanese heritage. Mm. And those things were kind of hidden from me. I was just told I was black and I was supposed to get over the rest of that stuff that made me light skinned.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother part of blackness, right, is that some of us have voluntary Lightness, whiteness in us, or other things, mm-hmm. and some of us don't. And the ones of us that don't, that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to bring up. I mean, I know that I can pinpoint my current or most recent whiteness to my British grandmother or my who I don't know Appalachian grandfather, but mm-hmm. th- what made my great grandmother light? I don't know what her thing is. I can only assume trauma. You know, right, because further back, and uh, and that's a I mean, that's just a part of our experience where we have to decide do we acknowledge that we are both colonizer and colonized, or do we just say no, we're black? Because black, more than any other group, and certainly not on the Asian side of me or anything, the black welcomes us, yes, nobody else does, yeah.
1: We we know you got some African in there somewhere, honey. Come on in.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's and I funny. think that's also a very specific American blackness. And I only say that because of knowing that not in all cir- circumstances do we, since we don't know where we come from specifically, right. it's hard to just roll up on Africans and be like, I'm one of you, right. <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, but from where?" Because I need to know which <laughs> I need to know which one of us you are, too. <laughs> right? Like,
1: which tribe are we talking about?
0: Right? Because we we <laughs> might be enemies. Who knows? You know? Right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> we might have fought a war to break off from you. You know what I'm saying? Though. So I hear you. I hear you. So college was a good time for me to start looking into that, and I got to say, I went through some real confusing times. Racially, for myself, just trying to figure out what the hell was going on.
0: Did you go through phases like a Black Power phase, a I just want to fit in phase? Uh, let's see if I can use this light skin to my advantage phase. Did you do things like that, or did you? Was it just a constant? Whoever saw you, you kind of adapted to what they needed you to be.
1: I think for me, college was I just wanted to fit in and do my thing and make friends. And, yeah, the being, the fact that I could never let go fully of, you know, I could be mixed all I want, but I still saw myself as Black. Right. And the fact that I couldn't fully let go of that probably made my life a little harder, especially since a lot of the Black students on campus saw me, saw my light skin, saw the fact that by that time I'd switched and I was playing viola. and. That was what I got my degree in. They saw me as a person who was privileged. Right. Which to me was just a shock. I was like, privilege? What the hell? What are you talking about? I grew up in the ghetto. What is, what is your problem? Right. But I, I
0: understand that a bit myself, too.
1: Yeah, they just saw the color of my skin. They saw the people I was hanging out with. And yes, I was dating men who were white. And it wasn't for lack of interest in men who were Black, but once they heard me talk and saw that I played the viola, they kind of lost interest in me. Mm. And I just was confused by the whole thing. I was just like, well, fine, I'm just going to go where I'm wanted. Mm. Um, And that was frustrating for me because I wanted to belong. I really wanted to. I know that sounds ridiculous because I've been Black my whole life, but I wanted to be Black. I wanted to be with other people who understood that part of me. Right. Because as much as I was into these things that are classically European, I'm not European entirely. Right. I mean, there's something thrown in there, but I certainly wasn't raised that way. Yeah. You don't have that cultural
0: background to right. to connect to. Uh, I mean, that's a real thing, what you said. And, and it's, it's something that kind of just casually comes out, I think, but it's, it's a pretty deep part of the mixed experiences. We have our foot in all these different groups, whatever we're mixed with. Right. We may look like one more than the other or something. And those moments when you're not validated by the people that you feel you are most reflective of, that fucks you up. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> You got to sit there and be like, well, then do I have to pretend to be this other thing that I'm also mixed with but don't feel like? Like, right. if I ever felt unwelcomed in Blackness even knowing that I'm a yellow presenting Black person, I would never think I could crawl over to the white side and be like, well, I guess I'm one of you now. Like, there's no part of me who, even though I acknowledge that this part exists in my blood, there's no part of me who can connect culturally because I don't have a context for whiteness, white experience. Right. Um, so I have to be like, I, I hate that I even say it that way. But I have to be black because that's what my context is. Like that's my experience. And that's where I was welcomed in the
1: beginning. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think the difference between you and me, you just made a really great point. You said that's where you were welcomed from the beginning. Even at the beginning, looking back, I think a lot of the confusion was that I didn't feel welcome entirely.
0: Yeah. And that's bizarre too. I mean, think about our, think about yours and my presentations. Like I know that you're pale. I've seen you, but right. you have all of the familiar symptoms of blackness, <laughs> you know, like your face, I, your, your hair, your body shape, like everything. When I was talking to you, I was talking to a black woman. I wasn't that, that, necessarily talking to a black woman of mixed heritage. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, I was, but. My visual of you, I wasn't thinking about where your paleness came from. I was thinking I'm talking in context to another Black woman. And then my presentation is so ambiguous where I look either Asian if I'm standing next to Asians or Latin if I'm standing next to anybody else. And I'm not Latin. (laughs) You know, I'm not Latin in any way, shape or form. Um, But black people can sniff me out, you know, it's in my face, it's in my body shape as well, it's not in my hair. If depending on if I'm talking to folks from the hood, they can detect hood upbringing, even though my code switch accent is telling people otherwise, like, I don't often find myself unable to blend in blackness, which given my presentation and given your presentation, baffles me that you would have the opposite experience because you look like a black woman who happens to be pale. And I look like an Asian woman who happens to have big lips. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) (laughs) like it's so bizarre.
1: Absolutely. I know exactly what you're saying. I get mistaken for being Latina all the time. I'm
0: sure you do. Yeah.
1: Speak Spanish made that more complicated. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, And I lived in New York for almost 20 years. So that was the best part. When I graduated from college and I moved to New York to go to grad school, I could be Black then. I know that
0: sounds really No, strange. that is so, I mean, seriously, it's so my experience of either mixed folks that I talk to or just me in general is like, there are just places where you get mm-hmm. to be Black. Uh, gosh, I even hate the language that we have. We're not far enough along in accepting of mixedness where we have a language that doesn't sound like we're also putting ourselves down at the same time, because right. I definitely don't mean it like this, but I'm Black. I don't care what anybody says. I'm Black. So no one gets to let me be Black. And yet, exactly. when somebody does let me be Black, I'm like, thank you. You know, like, <laughs> It sucks. It sucks so bad <laughs> that we have these, these conflicting feelings. Because I will sit here on my podcast or on the corner or in an office, wherever. And I'm like, you're not gonna tell me I'm not Black. And then a Black person And just not even just a black person, but just someone who is just blackity black and they're just black power and activism and everything. I'll be like, you acknowledge my blackness. Thank (laughs) you. You know, (laughs) it's so it's so horrifyingly embarrassing. I can't believe even now, even now, as mixed a F as I am, it still happens. So I 100% understand what you said right then. You just don't even have to be apologetic about it because we both have this. And like, I would say 90% of my mixed black guests have said something similar. We have, we just share this. We just share this.
1: I believe it. I definitely believe it. I always found it interesting. I went to graduate school at Juilliard and I found it really, really interesting that the place where I got to fully be myself as a black woman was a place that was so completely (laughs) famous for being White. a bastion <laughs> european art form. <laughs> like,
0: all right whatever if it's i'm worth, placing the timing that you might have been there at was there other famous black folks that we're aware of that went to juilliard there at the time that you were there
1: well see now you're gonna have me name dropping i, I mean have... you don't have to say it. you could just no, affirm or deny okay because i always love to see the look on people's face when i do this so it's hilarious um you know the Broadway star Audra McDonald?
0: Oh, my Buddha. You don't understand how much I love this woman.
1: <laughs> um, then you're really going to hate me when the next one happens.
0: Hey, no, there's no hate here. This is just now I reduce my degrees of separation between me and these people.
1: That's There good. you That's go. Fine. The next one you're going to love, Viola Davis.
0: <sighs> okay. All right. Let's, get, let's add to the list.
1: I went to the I went to the yard with both of those wonderful women and um, I love them both. I revel in their success. I I'm so proud of them as my sisters. It's a beautiful thing. And they were both along with a lot of the other African-American folks I went to Juilliard with. Mm -hmm. We were a family. We were just tight. We were close. And it didn't matter what you played. It didn't matter if you were a singer, a dancer, in opera, in drama. It didn't matter. We were a family. And there were folks in that group who were actually from Africa. Two of our of our cohort were from South Africa. And the, what, the most wonderful thing, you're going to love this, the, the two South African folks, they were like my complexion. I was like, I don't know how that happened. But I now feel African (laughs) because you are opening my eyes to other ways to to look like an African person.
0: Well, they would also be from apartheid time, too. So they would be like Trevor Noah says, probably born a crime. Exactly. It's probably a big deal that they presented Uh, the way they did.
1: But it was just beautiful because we were all different colors and shades and hair textures. And oh, my goodness, it was it was a celebration. I loved being with that group of people. We would get together and and meet and we would have speakers and we would have dinner. And we did these enormous Martin Luther King (laughs) celebrations in January that were literally reviewed by the New York Times. No Um, kidding.
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Because that was a whole lot of blackity black talent on one stage. Yeah, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. So that kind of healed me a lot Mm. it healed me from the the wounds of my childhood it healed me from the wounds of you know becoming a young woman and trying to figure out where I fit in right it was the first time that I literally ever felt how do I say this and and I think you and I talked a little bit about the fetishizing of black bodies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um when I was in college I was like white boy kryptonite it was hilarious they were just oh my god you're so exotic so beautiful oh our favorite
0: tag words
1: like i am not a fucking bird i'm not a goddamn flower not a rug or a dish exactly i'm a human being okay if i don't look like those pasty girls you grew up with that's fine but don't call me exotic i'm not strange or unusual. I'm just a different kind of human.
0: Well, okay. So here's something I'm actively trying. And it took my ass until 41 years old to start actively trying to do this. Okay. Is I always used to say I'm just different. Or I didn't like other. But I would say othered. And things like that. Yes. I am actively trying since forty. since I turned 41 in December. I have been actively trying to catch myself when I do it. And or if it's being done to me, tell them, oh, no, I'm not the different one. You are. And if they're white, like, like, especially because they're especially if they're white, um, because I need to to stop ranking my identity amongst whiteness. I mean, even using the term of color is starting to get something where I'm trying to figure out a new way because I go it's my go to. Woman of color, person of color, things like that. But I need to try to find a way to to separate myself from actively allowing language to other me. Yes, I cannot believe it has taken me until forty one to finally be actively trying to do that. But if someone exoticizes me or others me or difference me, I'm actively trying to flip it on them. If they're just like, "Oh my god, you're so exotic looking with your you know yellow skin," but you're black features and then i'll be like oh my god you're so exotic looking with your flat dry split ends and your really weird creepy blue eyes you know like just to (laughs) do it to them not necessarily that i'm being shitty but like actively trying to make them feel as uncomfortable (laughs) as they've made me feel i'll i will start to target in on that and that's yeah that took until middle age Uh, that's one of the joys of middle age is that you don't have to give a fuck anymore
1: Girl, I'm telling you, you turn 50 and they come and remove your last fuck in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's like, seriously, I turned 50 and just, I just air not it anymore. I was just going to say what I was gonna say. Like, y'all don't like it? Bye. You know, I don't have time for this. My life is too short. I'm just going to say my stuff. Um, I love it. It's so interesting that you say that, though, because even when we describe ourselves as being of color, we are still doing that with the assumption that white is the norm.
0: Yes, that's the that's that's the the whole issue
1: that you were just talking about. You know, the whole there is no language to describe people who aren't white that doesn't compare them to being white.
0: Yeah, it's like you can't not mention whiteness, even if you don't say white. Mm-hmm. And it's really frustrating and especially frustrating for those of us who have a mixture that includes any kind of white, because in nine times out of 10, we don't have the connection to that. Well, I, I won't say nine times out of 10. I'm, I'm using that because that's my experience. But um, for a lot of us who are mixed, who have some sort of whiteness in us, many of us weren't raised around those people. And so we can't connect to that. If we were raised around those people, our presentation prevents us from connecting fully to that, or at least to their experience. And so it's easy to like, not forget, but to behave in such a way as if whiteness has touched my skin, but not my person.
1: Right. It It, lives in your skin, but it doesn't live in your soul.
0: Yes, yes. In some kind of way where you're just like, like, yeah, I and I'll I'll say things like, I acknowledge that technically, (laughs) I am half white. But yet I don't know those people like I know one white relative, I say it on my show all the time. I knew my British grandmother, we lived with her, she lived with us, you know, things like that. She's still alive, but I don't no longer have a relationship with her. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm aware of not just my whiteness because of her, I'm aware of my Britishness because of her. So like even my white experience, even though I'm born and raised in America, my white experience isn't American, it's British. And Mm. so the the way in which Brits are and how they relate to... Of colorness is different than how Americans relate to of colorness. And so I don't really start engaging with white Americans until I'm like a a older teenager into adulthood. And so there for me meeting them for the first time when I transferred schools from my like hood school to my uh, suburban school, it was just like a National Geographic program that was different than most other people would do. It's just like, do you know that white people, you know, it's like tapping random black folks on the shoulder, be like, have you ever seen white people do that? And then like point to them and be like, yeah, that's what they do. I'm like, Oh, I've never seen that before. You know, <laughs> cause I grew up in the hood or the white people I knew were British. So they just did things differently. So it took, it, I'm almost half my life before I start encountering American whiteness in, like, a regular and populated kind of way. Random right. white people, sure. But, um, but
1: like, being in it all day, every day. Yeah,
0: and it's so foreign to me. Even now, like, even though I've spent my whole adulthood around, <laughs> even how I talk about white folks, it's like, they're so separate from me and yet I'm half of one. Um, you know, my engagement is always awareness of the otherness that I'm getting from them. Right. And so I'm trying to flip that as an adult and other them to right. try to break those barriers down. I know it's not going to affect most of them. Every now and then you see it needle somebody and, you know, they're going to have to think about it later. Hey,
1: you know, education is a beautiful thing. <laughs> you
0: know, knowledge is power. So I, it's a weird, it's a weird experience. And then for like those of us like you and I who if someone's not paying direct attention to us, sees a light skinned person and they just kind of keep it moving.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And even if they have biases against what we're mixed with, you know, they might not be actively paying attention, but the second they do and then other us, that's when we have to deal with like, Oh, here's this shit again. Right. I'm a rug right. or a dish right now.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. that. I was glad to have the experience of being around people who, you know, because I felt I had been othered in two different ways. I had been othered right. by white people. but I had also been othered by my own black people. Right. Um, I was really happy to have the time at Juilliard to 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 feel that love of my own, to feel my own people love and accept me in ways that I had not been loved and accepted by my family in a lot of ways mm. um, so that was a really that was an amazing feeling and I've carried that with me for the rest of my life um, I think it really like I said earlier it really went a long way to heal a lot of the wounds but it also served to build me up as a person and as an artist a whole lot more which is great right? and of course in the middle of all of this I marry a white guy <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm with you. I got a half a one in the room. I get it. I mean, it's crazy.
1: He and I met in in the eighth grade. We sat across from each other in eighth grade homeroom. And if you had asked me when I was 13 if I thought I was going to marry this dude, I'd be like, "Are you crazy?" Um, he got better though. He got better. He got better.
0: <laughs> <I> got better.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, and we we dated briefly in high school, and then in college, we won't. We won't discuss my checkered past (laughs) too much. We'll just go straight to the major relationship. Um, He asked me to marry him when we were 20 years old. And uh, we've been together. We've been together on uh, 31 years. We've been married for 27. So
0: I know we're coming a little bit close to the end, but I do want to hear the story again about how husband got the stamp of approval because that's Uh, the blackest black part of our experiences. Who who gives the approval?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That experience was real black. Um, Yeah, this is one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. My, um, I said earlier, my grandmother was just, she was my everything. She was my absolute everything. Um, Other than my husband and my kids, I think the next one in line, of you know, who do you love in your family? She's definitely right there.
2: Mm-hmm. Right there. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so when my husband asked me to marry him, I said, okay, I'm giving you a provisional yes, but I'm gonna take you home for Thanksgiving. Doesn't bother me if my mom and dad want me to marry you or not. You know, that's not the, that's not a problem. But um, if my grandmother doesn't like you, you you're gonna have to go. And he was like, what? I was like, no, seriously, <laughs> my grandmother's not on board. <laughs> so he's like, OK, well, clearly she's important. Um, so for two days before, he ate nothing but popcorn <laughs> to stretch his stomach out. But he was always hungry. Um, and I brought him home and I had brought another ex home with me earlier on in my life. And my grandmother took one look at my soon-to-be husband and went, oh, honey, he's so handsome. He's so much better looking than that other one. That other one looked like a wet chicken. <laughs> and I was like, okay, grandma, I'm just blowing all my stuff up. Um, and of course, you know, my family's sitting there looking at me like, who is this white boy Lisa brought home? Because <laughs> you know? that was always like, which white boy is Lisa going to bring home this time? Oh, no. Uh, and my grandmother She'd pray over the table for like 10 minutes. She'd tell all your business. Um, she'd be like, yeah, we got praying for so-and-so because, you know, he in jail again. Or <laughs> uh, He'd pray for the whole house from the foundation to the roof, from the front to the back. She just, you would literally be sitting there and your stomach would be growling because you wanted her to shut up so you could eat. <laughs> um, and she had been a domestic in her earlier years. So she would lay out the table Girl, you are not ready for this. We had like two 20 pound turkeys. She would make multiple cakes and pies. (laughs) Just, I mean, I never knew hunger. I will say that. I never knew hunger as a child because I don't know where she would get food sometimes, but we always had food and we always had plenty of food. I didn't understand like portion control until I started hanging out with my (laughs) husband. I was like, "Wow, really? This is it? Like, there are no leftovers? Like, I can't have seconds? What the hell?" Um, So she she would lay out all of this beautiful food, and then she would go sit in the kitchen. She wouldn't even eat with us, and that broke my heart. But she was just that was her way. But inevitably she would come out after 20 minutes and she would say the same thing every single time. Y'all ain't eating nothing Mm. every single time. So my man is sitting next to me at the table and she's watching him before she goes in the kitchen. She's watching him pile food up on his plate. She's trying to explain stuff to him. And he already knows because I made sure my man was informed prior to dinner. So he knew what everything was. And he's putting it all on his plate and she's watching him and smiling. So when she comes back out to, you know, pronounce that we hadn't eaten anything, she looks down and girl, she was lucky my husband left her the plate. (laughs) He did everything but lick that thing. That plate was clean. It was clean like you had washed it clean. (laughs) And She looked over at me. And the one thing I didn't say before is that, you know, my grandmother had a theory that a man who did not have a healthy appetite for food was deficient in other areas. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. So she looked down at my husband's plate and she looked at me and smiled and she said, Ooh, baby, he got a good appetite.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he just looked up at her and she had told him to call her grandma. And he was like, Grandma, can I have some more? <laughs> <laughs> she, oh, my God. She was so tickled. She just thought he was the best. <laughs> Later on, I said, Grandma, you know, he asked me to marry him. And she goes, oh, yeah. Do you love him? Yes, ma'am. Is he good to you? Yes, ma'am. Well, I guess you better go on marry him then. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. That was it. He had the grandma seal of approval. Mm -hmm. It was good. It was good. She she loved him. She loved um, my daughter, our older child, who's 21. She just thought my daughter was the best thing ever. That was her first great grandchild. Mm. Um, She was alive when my son was born, but by then she was already pretty far down the road of dementia. So she... She knew he existed, but she didn't really know him but yeah she she was such a major figure in my life. she is there's so much of her in me, mm-hmm. and I'm proud I'm very proud. I
0: actually think I need to do a whole episode on grandmas and big mamas because it's so often the person that we've gravitated towards or a person in our family that we've gravitated towards it's it's such a common thread well specifically in blackness i think it's super duper is a big common thread but in my family the person that i'm biologically related to that i love the most is my japanese grandmother and um yeah. you know for all the same types of things you know the the food and and you know thing little things that we shared together um it's weird to both feel like you know this person super well and don't really know her like I don't know her as a woman I know her as my grandmother I would like to know who she was as a woman you know she's still alive but you know what I'm saying like I would like yes. to know who she was at her peak womanness. but you know I'll only know her as a granddaughter to her and um yeah our grandmothers are are special
1: yeah there's some real fierceness and toughness in that mm-hmm. it's beautiful it's funny you say because I found out later on, after my daughter was born, I think I touched on this a little in our previous conversation, my grandmother, who I love so much, is not biologically related to me. Oh, right. Right. We didn't even get into that. I <laughs> nine years old that I had been adopted within my family. So this whole family that I had this history with and all of this love and push and pull and everything, I wasn't related to most of them. It was the craziest thing. Mm-hmm. And that was like a whole other transformation for me, you know, and a whole other discovery right? of, you know, who my, my, I don't want to say my real parents, my parents raised me and I adore them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the parents who brought me into the world are very different people and they're younger people of a different generation. And so it's a whole different feel and I know who they are and There are relationships there. There is love there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's love between my siblings and me. I grew up as an only child. I was very lonely. I always wanted brothers and sisters. So when I was 29, I found out I was the oldest of six. That's so crazy. Yeah. And I had relationships with all of them. Unfortunately, one of my brothers is deceased. But um, yeah, it's, it's crazy it's, it's like, I got a brand new life for my birthday. <laughs>
0: you know? I know. Right. Like that's so, that's, that's so wild to, to think. And, and I mean, and family, family is a strange thing, right? Cause there's the people we're biologically related to. There's the people who raised us. Sometimes yeah. they're the same, you know, sometimes they're both and sometimes they're not. Um, as we get older, some of those trim off and, you know, move on or disappear or whatever. And then we adopt new people to be family with, but, the stories and the things that we have between these people that we are family to can be can be so wild
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, especially to find out so late it my my husband also found out late in life that his dad was not his father um mm-hmm. and we were we were into our late 20s when we actually met the the father Um, And his other kids and and now seeing the similarities between that side of the family, having not grown up with them and things like that are probably something that you might experience, too. Oh, yeah. And seeing weird similarities that you're just like, oh, this is nature, not nurture.
1: (laughs) Oh, I found out there was a whole lot of nature. Um, And it was a little it was a little strange. It was good, though. I mean,
0: the discovery of it all can be a weird experience, though.
1: Well, especially when you've just given birth and you're four weeks postpartum and your hormones are still crazy and you're holding your baby in your arms and you're trying to envision how somebody could have given you as a baby away. Right. That was deep. I think that probably was like the deepest thing I had to handle as an adult ever. And I've, I've lost people. Both of my parents are gone. My grandmother and grandfather are gone. Like, a whole lot of people I love in my life have left They've you know, they've gone on. And the one really major existential crisis I remember having was holding my daughter and thinking of myself as a baby and my birth mother holding me. And it was like, what would it have been like for her to give me to someone else to raise? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and actually be able to witness your upbringing.
1: Right, because from the outside, person in my family.
0: Right, right.
1: Keep the details low. (laughs) Right, absolutely.
0: I totally, I totally get it. I'm trying to talk around it too. But I guess if we ever do want to talk about again, that could definitely be a whole nother episode of Militantly Mixed. But since we are coming a little bit towards the end. First of all, uh, I think you and I could talk all the time because, well, one, we proved that we didn't even know each other. We still spent two and a half hours together the (laughs) other day. But yeah, absolutely. Like, I think there's a lot of crossover between us. And I think also, although separated by... A few years we we are both definitely products of the end of the civil rights era, and sort of what does that mean for us as black folks or mixed black folks was right. was happening while we were both growing up you're only what a year or two after Virginia versus loving i'm one like one year. one year okay and i'm i'm ten I'm like nine years behind it, so we both have that thing of like how do we even how are we even like this, given that <laughs> It was it was illegal (laughs) a little bit before us and stuff. So I think there's a lot of crossover between us because of that. But since we are coming to the end, the one question that I want to ask everybody that comes on the show is what do you love most about being mixed?
1: Wow. You know, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I still feel completely unprepared. to answer.
0: So if like people don't listen to the show, I smack them with it and they're just like, what? You've listened. So you've heard people answer this question, but it's still it's a weird, it's a weird thing to be confronted with. And something that we're not often asked. What do we love about something?
1: Because it's never seen as something to love. It seemed kind of as a burden. And I don't, I think at some point in my life, I was confused by it. But I don't feel that way anymore. I'm very happy in the skin that I'm in. Um. And not only being a mixed person myself, but being the mother of two mixed children right? who I literally think my daughter is the most beautiful woman in the world. I really do. I look at her and I'm just like, girl, you the best of every continent. Just, <laughs> she's just fierce and fantastic and wonderful. And the thing I think I love the most about being mixed is that I've discovered that I'm beautiful for a lot of different reasons. I'm not just beautiful because I come from this part of the world or that part of the world, but I'm sort of a living embodiment of what happens when those various parts of the world can come together as one. And I think that that's beautiful. Mm. And if we sort of learn that lesson culturally, I think that we would all just get along so much better. I really do.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Thank you for all the back and forth that we've had over the last, what is like three or four weeks, I think we've been talking. (laughs) I've just, I've I've enjoyed you so much. I think you are a pleasure of a person to get a chance to speak with. Uh, Is there anything you want to share with the audience about if people want to connect with you? Um,
1: I like to post on Instagram a lot. My username is violamom2. That's V-I-O-L-A-M-O-M with the number two. I'm an avid gardener. I'm an avid knitter. I post pictures of my family. I post stupid selfies of me. And I also, (laughs) I'm a huge advocate. I'm I'm recently between jobs. Let's put it that way. I'm a huge advocate of um, diversity in the classical music world. And that's a part of how I give back for all of what I was given as a child because mm-hmm. I can't give back the people who gave it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can work to be sure, like that girl I talked about who lived across the street from me, it was a sin and a shame. She couldn't play the violin. Right. So if there are kids out here, I'm trying to get instruments in their hand and, and open up a world to them so that they can dream and they can do the things that I've been able to do play all over the world, play with lots of great people. And just, you know, live my best life that I wouldn't have had if someone hadn't reached out and said, hey, come with me. And I try to do that in my professional life, in my personal life. Um, I'm all about giving back to my community and and loving on brown people.
0: (laughs) And that's why we are militantly mixed, because we're trying to do services to our communities, provide service to our communities. All right, well, that was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And for everybody else out there, don't forget to be your mixed-ass selves. And we're out. Yay! Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media, turn your side hustle into your main hustle.